there, and thanks for tuning in to episode 78 of the Eyes Free Sports Podcast. This is your host, Greg Lindbergh. Here on episode 78, we are chatting with a highly talented and super fast sprint runner, three-time Paralympian, gold medalist, and uh, he also has a new sport that he is really focusing on quite a bit now. So let's go ahead and get running now here on Eyes Free Sports with episode number 78. All right, so my guest here on this episode of the podcast is David Brown, and David, uh, to many, is known as the world's fastest blind man. David, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on today. Definitely. Really, really excited to interview you. I know, like I've mentioned uh, offline, I've you know, read about you for a long time, definitely aware of your career and just your amazing achievements in track and field. Uh, so super honored and, and excited to have you on here. Thank you. So why don't we just start things off with kind of your your early years? I understand. Were you born in Kansas City? Yeah, so I was born in Kansas City, Missouri. I was born with complete vision and age of 15 months old. I came down with Kawasaki's disease, which gave me glaucoma. And when I was about three years old, I had a surgery for my left eye, caused it to shrink into its eye socket. And um, honestly, that was... Also around the time, I know I mentioned to you this off camera, I got my nickname of downtown David Brown. I was going downtown to the hospital so many times in sometimes weeks that one of the nurses there was just like, downtown David Brown, you know, we get to see you again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but that's kind of how that whole thing came about. So um, six years old, though, I started losing my sight in my right eye. I had good like 2020 vision in it for a while, but it started decreasing gradually over the span of seven years. And then it left me with limited sight that I have. Now I can only see light and uh, shapes and shadows and some color. Gotcha. I see. And as far as your education, did you attend any mainstream schools when you were young or? You can say that. So I attended, a, I started out in preschool and kindergarten at a specific school for the blind, which is called the Children's Center for the Visually Impaired is there in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, still there to this day. Always have love for them. And uh, I try to do things with them too when I'm in, uh, in the city. Um, and then I went to a school called Bryan Elementary that actually closed down. That was also in Kansas City, Missouri. And then I started attending the Missouri School for the Blind, like my middle school slash high school years. And uh, Hazelwood West, too, actually. So, yeah, I was dual enrolled in the School for the Blind in the public school. I see. I see. Mm-hmm. And I understand, was it kind of your, your school age years when you really got into adaptive sports? Yeah, that's when I got involved with adaptive sports because um, I started out in just regular sports you know, like basketball and baseball and stuff. And then it got to the point where I wasn't able to do those anymore. Even like the PE class in my elementary school, I had to go into the adaptive PE class because I couldn't really keep up with what was going on with my other classmates. You know, a lot of the things that we were doing with like the physical fitness tests and stuff, how they were doing doing the shuttle run. You ever heard of that? How you'll like uh, run down, grab like these things and then you run back and then you got to like put them beyond a line and stuff like that. Like I couldn't even, I couldn't do that. I couldn't see like the contrast and stuff like that. So I had to go into adapted uh, P and then um, the adapted sports portion came into the Missouri school for the blind where I started getting involved with track and goalball and all those other sports. You know, uh, I got introduced to beat baseball around that period of time, but I didn't really like get serious about it. Gotcha. I see. And so kind of the, the track and field piece, what age would you say, you know, you were really inspired to, to really pursue track and field? Probably about 15 years old, 15, 16, maybe. I was like around the uh, time that the Beijing games were going on. That's right. Like 2008. Yep. Yeah. So like around that, eight, like around that area, because uh, I learned of that high level of competition around that period. And since I was involved with track and I got to see some of these high performing athletes, you know, one of the guys actually that I I trained alongside uh, Lex Gillette, I got to see him run and race and do that kind of stuff. I was like, yo, I can do that. Just like that dude. (laughs) (laughs) Yup. Yup. So Lex was definitely a big inspiration for you. It sounds like. 
know, he'll kick start some stuff. You can say. Oh yeah. Um, so when it comes to the Paralympics, let's just talk about, you know, initially getting into, uh, kind of that Paralympic mode and what was kind of your first big event in track and field? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, so how I got into the Paralympic mode that you could say is just around my junior year of high school. So one of my coaches, they came up to me and I called us the core four. There was like three other athletes, including myself. So me plus three, you know, that's four of us. And um, he came up to us and he was like, yo, there's a opportunity for y'all if you want to, to run on this relay team, you know, and it was alongside a lot of the guys that went to Beijing, China. And so, of course, I thought about it, took it hardcore into consideration. And I was like, you know what? I want to do it. And that's kind of when things got started for me. My Paralympic journey, you can all, like say, because um, I went to pin relays, ran on the relay team, met Lex. Um, I met Josiah Jameson uh, and shoot, a couple of other guys, you know, that uh, are known here in the Paralympic realm. They're not blind, but you know, like Blake Leaper, I met him for the first time. And that's just to name a few, you know? Yeah. And also the guy that I would later uh, run alongside and compete with in Rio. I also met him back then too, but I wasn't competing along. Like I wasn't competing with him, but I ran with him actually in that race, which was cool. And um, from there, the director at that time, Kathy Sellers, she was like, yo, this kid got potential. We need to get him, one, he qualified for adult nationals. We need to get him to adult nationals. And then, two, we need to get him into the development system. So after I went to adult nationals that year, you know, that was to try out for the world championship team in 2011. I missed that team, but I was able to go to different development camps that they were having out here in Trula Vista where I now lit uh, – well, I live out here in Trilla, but uh, I just train here at the site. I don't live here anymore on site, but I was for a number of years. And, um, yeah, I mean, the rest was just history from that. After I graduated, I moved out here full time, lived, trained, and uh, went to London in 2012. And that was my first Paralympic Games. Wow. Very cool. And let's let's dive into to 2012 in London and just talk to me about that whole experience, you know, getting to, to compete literally on the world stage for the first time. Well, getting there honestly was chaotic in itself, because as I just mentioned, I moved out here from uh, St. Louis, Missouri, and I was 19 years old. And I, I always tell people this. I literally started at ground zero. And I say this for a reason, because when you have a goal and a dream, a hope, you know, a passion that you're really committed to make it happen. Like if you are willing to work for it and do whatever it takes in order to get there, if you grind hard, you can make it happen. And I say this cause, okay, I can't, I came out here ground zero. I at home, I'm out of shape, you know, went from couch to now I'm out here living full time training in the month of May. And our trials to go to London, it, it happened six weeks later. And if anybody understands training, no, six weeks worth of training is not enough in order to get from point A to point B in the realm of track and field, you know. But I came out here and I started doing two a days and my coach didn't prescribe that for me. You know, he had me do a workout in the morning. And then I came back out by myself and put together workout plans to where it was like, okay, let me do this on the treadmill or let me do this on the bike. And I was doing different things in order to help boost up my fitness levels that much faster to when six weeks later, when I was uh, at the trials in Indiana, I ran two personal bests and I ended up making the team to London because I ran my qualifying standards too. So five months later, I'm in London and you no, know, now there's a little more time, I guess you could say of training underneath my belt, because if I didn't make London, I would have had to go home. Hmm. That's one thing. So now I got some more training under my belt. So we get to London, I'm down there coming in with the USA team and I'm already like, what the heck? I was just 
a spectator four years prior to this. This is crazy, you know, mind blown by this whole situation. Down there, enjoying myself in opening ceremonies and taking it all in. Competition comes around, and this is just, man, I mean, it's very different because, of course, in the Paralympic Games, you know, you don't deal with these kind of things when you're uh, competing domestically a lot. So now we have to go through the call room. They're checking my eye shades. They're checking my tether. They're checking my spikes. They're doing a whole bunch of stuff that, you know, I'm not even used to, honestly. They're like, oh, yeah, it's going to take like at least 45 minutes to an hour to get through the call room. I'm like, 45 minutes to an hour? But I'm already out here, like, warming up an hour and a half to two hours prior to my race. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, what the heck? So that's something that a lot of people don't really know about, like, when it comes down to what time the race starts, a lot of the athletes, we're already there at the facility like four hours prior to when we're actually there and they see us on screen. So I've already been there at the venue for like, you know, like I said, four hours, sitting, <laughs> drinking water, that, those kind of things, you know what I'm saying? And then they telling me, okay, here I am. I got a warm up. And I'm like, well, coach, you know, is my race at like, let's just throw a number out there. I'm like, my race is at 12 and you want me to start warming up at what? Like 930? Why? <laughs> yeah, three hours. You know, or he so was like, earlier. well, it's going to take you an hour to get ready. So, <laughs> like, a newbie, you know what I'm saying? Me being a noob is like, what the heck? You know, so all this stuff is just trying to wrap my head around all this. You know what I'm saying? It's crazy. You get out there and you, you see over a hundred thousand people. Well, and I don't mean that literally, you know what I'm saying? Like in London too, they're so aware, like, and uh, aware of blindness and disability and stuff. They treat their Paralympic athletes on the same level as they treat their Ole- Olympic athletes. So as soon as we got out there, it was just wild. Like the crowd was going crazy. And I'm mm. like, this is ridiculous. You know, can get <laughs> wow. anybody nervous. It's crazy. And my first race was the 200 meters, which was, I ran so sloppy my first round. It was amazing that I made it into uh, round two. <laughs> <laughs> But by that point, I got it down underneath my belt. I was like, hey, you know, I can do this. It's it's a little nerves. And I think that's like still to this day with any race, you know, my first race, even in like still to this day, last year, for instance, in Tokyo, I was like, hey, got to get the first one out. And then once you get the first one out, it's like, all right, we good. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, exactly. I made it to the semifinals in both races and I wasn't even expected to go that far. And even by that point, though, a lot of the commentators at that time, they were like, yeah, y'all keep an eye out for David Brown because he's going to be a force to be reckoned with. You know, I was only 19 years old. They were like, and this kid made it this far already. Like I was running with some of the big boys. They were like, yeah, this kid going to be something like watch out Mm. for him. Wow. Lo and behold, who knew that they were going to be right? Yep, yep. It really is fascinating looking back, I'm sure, just kind of reflecting on your career. So then uh, advancing on, you know, past after London, just talk to me about, uh, you know, other events you competed in. I think you did set a, was it 2014? You set a world record? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but after that, actually, in 2013, I was uh, focusing on world championships. Me and my coach we decided to uh, pick up the 400 meters and um, train. He was explaining to me, you know, hey, if you get 400 meter strength, that can help out your 100 meters so you can run a lot faster. So I picked up the 400 meters and I fell in love with it, honestly. Like, I know that race is sucks, but that's one reason why I love it, because it sucks. You know, I'm a person about like, hey, I like pushing myself and leaving my guts out there on the track, you know. And so I went to world championships in 2013. They were, it was in France. And, uh, I remember I said to my guide, I was like, yo, I want to run the 400 and the 200. And my guide at that time, he was a hundred meter dude predominantly. And so he was like, I was like, how you feel about me running the four? He was like, I ain't, I don't have a choice, (laughs) (laughs) but we got a silver medal out of it. That was the cool part, you know, for me to, just pick that 
race up that year and train as hard as I did. I ended up getting the silver medal. I still hold the American record to this day um, of 51.7. And then the following year after that, my coach was like, okay, let's start uh, working on your 100-meter speed a little bit. And um, let's maximize what pretty much you just did last year. You know, you can now amp up the speed. Let's get a little more quality in, go a lot faster and do some things. And that's when I went under 11 seconds and um, broke both the 100 meters and the 200 meter world records in 2014. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. And then so just kind of uh, advancing on to, to 2016, Rio de Janeiro, mm-hmm. what, what was kind of your mindset going into that that second Paralympic Games for you? Well, that Paralympic Games, so the first time in London, of course, I was going to compete. I was going to hopefully win. But at the same time, I, I wouldn't say I knew in the back of my mind that I wasn't going to, but um, it was more so just the fact that I'm even here in the first place, like, Hey, anything can happen. I'm just going to go out there and give everything that I got. And hopefully like I come away with something. Like I said, I was fascinated by the fact I even made it to the semifinals and to the fact where I almost made it to the finals based off of my time. But, you know, sadly came up short a little bit. And Rio, it was a whole different thing because, you know, we got four years under our belt now, a whole training cycle. And this is kind of what the director of Paralympics, as well as my coach was looking towards anyway, was gearing me up towards Rio. It was not expected for me to go to London. My long-term goal was to go to Rio. Hmm. Whether it was for me to medal at Rio, I don't think so. But it was, long story short, no, we're gearing this kid up for Rio and beyond, you know? So by this point, it's like, okay, not only is it gearing me up to go to Rio, it's gearing me up to go to Rio and potentially medal too at the same time. And of course I keep an open mind always just for the simple fact of, you know, you get on the starting line, anything can happen, especially when you're dealing with, you know, two people, me plus my guide, you know, we can, one person can slip, one person can, you know, false star, one faulty step, whatever, you know, anything can happen and you're out, you know what I'm saying? Or we lose, you know what I'm saying? Prime example in 2015, actually the year prior to Rio, my toughest competitor, the former world record holder, we were in the same race in um, our world championships. And you can look this up actually too, if anybody were to, go on YouTube and you know, watch it. I ended up winning that race, but at the same time, what ended up happening in this race in the final in the 100 meters, I don't know exactly how it happened or what happened, but his guide did something. The athlete went flying off of the track and he got seriously injured. Oh, wow. Yeah, like, it was crazy. Like I said, I ended up winning the race, but that's an example of, like I said, anything can happen. If they go into that race expecting for that to happen, no. You know what I'm saying? 100% no. But that's stuff that can happen. Anything can happen. You know what I'm saying? So I kept an open mind going into Rio. Like, you know what? There's a great opportunity, a great possibility of me winning this race. But at the same time, I know like, hey, the odds may or may not be in my favor. No, but so we'll see what happens. And so getting into, I guess you could say the rounds now. Okay. First round goes, I'm like, okay, once again, got that out of my, my system. Second round goes around. I'm like, okay, I'm feeling a little confident now. Like, yeah, let's get it. You know? And then I, once again, had complete confidence that I could, possibly win but like i said still keeping that open mind because this was the day before the next day i don't know how i'm gonna feel i still gotta go i still got 24 like 12 hours i want to say 24 hours it was like 12 hours or so before my next race 18 hours or so before my next race i don't know how i'm gonna feel tomorrow afternoon you know i can wake up have stomach ache you know and i'm like anything you know what i'm saying (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Once again, anything so, can happen. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So going into the actual day, okay, I remember this very, very well. I woke up, 
very like I was sleepy because I was freezing. My room was super cold. <laughs> and <laughs> woke up freezing. I was like, oh shoot, hopefully I'm not getting sick. Right. I end up eating and I'm like, okay, you know, I'm feeling okay. Go back, take a nap, you know, and I'm kicking my feet up. And I tried to make the room a little bit warmer and stuff like that. And um staying hydrated and everything goes, okay, race time comes around and my muscles are super tight at this point. I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, <laughs> uh, well, let's get to the track. We'll warm up and we'll see what's up. You know, that's what my coach always says. You know, you got to get to the track. You got to warm up your muscles, you know, and it's just, I mean, it's almost like anything, you know, you warm something up and then it's a lot more pliable. That's what it is. You don't want to start just going off of just cold muscles, right? Sure, sure. So I was like, okay, I get to the track, see the trainers getting stretched out, you know, get a massage. I start my run, you know, warm up run. I'm like, okay, I, I'm moving a lot faster than what I'm actually feeling. That's one thing. You know, my body was feeling, I wouldn't say like like garbage, but I was feeling heavy. And apparently I was running a lot faster than what I actually felt like I was running. I was like, this is odd, but I'm going to go with it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yo, so it gets yo. to the time now, of course, of now we got to get into the call room and stuff. So we go through that whole process of okay, we got to check in, you know, they do our credentials, they do our eye shades, patches. We go through all that process. That's the first call room. Now we got to go to the second call room. Okay. And now I'm rolling out a little bit. I'm rolling my legs out and um, getting some water in me, kind of like calming my nerves a bit. And then I'm like, okay, you know, I'm starting to come alive a little bit. You know, when I rolled my muscles out, that's actually when I felt better. I was like, okay. I'm feeling good now, rolling my glutes. But then I started getting mad because I heard the Brazilian crowd chanting for my competitor. And I was like, well, you know, that's to be expected. You know, he is the hometown hero, whatever else and whatnot. But you know what? I'm the favor to win here. So uh, <laughs> sure, <laughs> where's my <sure>. love? <laughs> you know, and you of know. course, you know, it's one of them things. You got to do sometimes what you need to do in order to hype yourself up. So I use that kind of as my motivation to be like, you know what? I'm going to kick his butt. You know? <laughs> So when we walked out there, though, this is when it really hit home. So we walked out to the track, right? And we're walking up the, the tunnel, you know, and we're out there on the track. You hear the crowd now. Everything is happening. It's like, oh, man, we're here. This is going on. It's game day. We're ready to go, baby. You know, we're setting our blocks up. I'm feeling okay. I'm nervous as heck, of course. And I can definitely feel it in my body. I'm like, I feel nervous and I'm running like I'm nervous. I can feel that in myself. But it took for the crowd to actually start once again, chanting for my competitor guy. And I was like, I turned to my guide and I'm like, brother, shut these people up. <laughs> and that's when actually I snapped in the place and I was like, I'm ready. Let's go. I'm in my zone. And I'm the person where if I get quiet, I'm a silent but deadly kind of a dude. So the quieter I get, the more lethal I become. And I got like super silent. May not been like a outward silence, but I calm myself down on the inside. You know, so it's that inward silence where it's like anybody. I mean, it's like that with any competition. You no, know, you you do beat bit ball, right? Sure. You get nervous, you got to calm yourself down on the inside, you know what I'm saying, and calm those nerves, right? So, same thing, you know, I was super nervous. All those internal nerves went down to where it was like, I, right, I'm ready, I'm locked and loaded. And when that gun went off, I was, like, ready. I was blazing. And... Yeah, I mean, we got out in front of everybody, and I guess we just stayed in front of everybody. <laughs> wow, wow, that's awesome! And I mean, what a what a story! Like you said, just <laughs> internalizing things, you know, having the ability to kind of mentally simmer things down, get in that that mode, get that game face on, and just go. Mm -hmm. So, what at that that first gold medal? That was your first actual gold medal that you had ever won, right? Yeah, Paralympic Games. That was my first gold, actually. 
But crazy enough, though, like, though I may won that gold, like, that's always going to be the thing as far as, like, my first ever Paralympic gold medal. That means a lot. But the one that means the most to me was the gold medal that I got prior in um, 2015 Toronto, Canada at Parapan Games. And the reason beyond that is because that was my first time actually competing against my toughest competitors. My toughest competitors are from Brazil, right? And they dominated the totally blind T11 classification for years. And I was competing against not one, not two, but three dudes who gotten gold, silver, and bronze at prior games till I came into the picture, right? So 2015 Parapan Games, I'm competing against them for it wasn't my first time, but now here I am. I'm on toe to toe, same level with these dudes, right? Yep. And this is the first time I'm actually competing against them where there's like, I guess you could say there's stakes because I did race against them in 2014. They came up here to one of our meets, but you know, those kind of meets are not the same. You know what I'm saying? So like I'm here in, against them in Toronto, Canada and I beat them. And honestly, I was 0. 0.032 off of my world record that I set the year prior and that's when at that point too all my confidence came in and I was like I can actually beat these guys I can probably I can have a chance to win gold next year like I ran these races I went through the rounds and I came out on top against these dudes there's hope for me here and like that first gold medal right there, that was when it all began for me, where it was like, yo, I can do this. I can freaking do this. Like, <laughs> yeah, a whole different side of me came out. And the celebration was just unreal that day. Like, I wish they got that on camera because I was two turned. <laughs> like I ran and it was cool, too, because my family was there, too. My little nephew, he was three years old at the time. So he got to celebrate with me in that moment. I ran over to where they were and I was like slapping them high fives and like jumping up and down and like running through the crowd. And I was, like I said, I was just super lit. (laughs) Picked up my nephew, spun him around. Like it was so exciting. (laughs) Wow. Amazing. Yeah. And like you said, that really gave you that confidence just going forward too. It sounds like. Mm-hmm, it did. So then I uh, definitely want to ask you about Tokyo. So obviously the games were postponed for a year because of COVID. And yeah. I'm just curious, how did that affect you? How were you impacted by that postponement? Honestly, for me, I know it affected a lot of people in a negative sense, but it affected me in a very positive way. And here's the reason why. Because the year prior to that, I was in a very dark place in my mm. career. And... I honestly didn't know how I was going to get out of it. It was very shaky. And going into the Tokyo year, I was not confident in that year starting out, honestly. And March comes around and they said they're postponing the games. And I'm like, okay, well, cool. What time are we training though? Because I need to train. And me, I'm a person I love to grind. I'm a training kind of a person, though I am a competitor too. I can compete. But when it comes to the grind and the journey, this is one reason why I love the 400 too, because there's so much involved, so much pushing, so much grinding, so much, you know, blood, sweat, and tears and stuff. So when it comes to the training, I'm like, well, what time are we training? I know what I need to do in order to get to the level that I need to be on to be ready whenever the games are happening. That wasn't happening, honestly, uh, as far as training goes, because the center started closing down. And actually, that's when I moved off site. I moved off uh, outside of the training center just so I can continue to train. And during that period of time, I, I know this might sound weird, but I found myself as an athlete where it was like, okay, if you were to ask me before 2020, Dave, how did you do it? How did you win gold? How did you get from point A to point B? I would not have been able to tell you. 
Hmm. Like I did not understand pretty much how to sprint. I did not understand how the mechanics worked. I didn't understand how this led into that. Like I did not understand the process, but in 2020, I was able to take a step back and I learned what did I need to do and figured out what needed to happen in order for all this to click. How do I need to train and what do I need to do in order to have this glute activation happen that they're talking about? You know what I'm saying? Or right. what needs to be explained to me for me to be able to do this, kind of like what they're asking me to do. You know what I'm saying? And even when it came down to nutrition, I'm like, how do I need to eat in order to get to the poundage or the skin folds or whatever need that needs to happen? Like during that period of time, I learned that I had a gluten allergy and I'm sensitive mm. to dairy. But yeah, I'm like, it was during that period of time where I learned that kind of stuff. So I was like, okay, well, let me switch my diet up. You know what I'm saying? I would probably, and I will admit, I would not have figured that out if I didn't have that time to actually sit there and reflect and deep dive into what does my body need? You know, and during that period, I actually picked up one of the things that uh, me and my wife do now, which is the staple for our business, which is Team DR Brown LLC. I picked up jump roping and hmm. I started jump roping like a lot because that was my main form of cardio. And when I say a lot, like I'm jump roping two hours a day, you know, two hours in the morning, two hours at night, and then we'll go for a walk. Wow. You know what I'm saying? Lot. So, <laughs> yeah, so I'm doing a lot of stuff. So I'm picking up jump roping and I'm mastering how to jump rope and then getting into, like I said, just great condition in the sense of I lost 15 pounds and got super shredded because now I'm making all these changes and things are clicking. And when I say clicking, I'm using my muscles correctly. Like I'm learning how to activate this. I'm learning how to do this. Things are going. And then my coach later on in the year, this is about August, like July slash August. He was like, is there anywhere that is close to you that we can go and train? You know, I'm happy to meet up with you, Dave. And, um, of course, I'll keep my mask on. You know what I'm saying? So we were going to take precautions, you know, in order for him to come out and train with me. I'm like, yeah, there's somewhere that we can meet. When he saw me, he said, whoa. <laughs> like, that's all he could say mm. was just, Dave, you have been training. I'm like, sure. yeah. And going into that following year of Tokyo, you know, season, which is the 2021 season, I was beyond ready to get training and the training that I was ready to go for, like, like I was, I was ready. You know what I'm saying? Long story short, there's no other way to put it. I was ready to go. But once again, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, you know, things happen when you're dealing with somebody else, you know, other people, other factors other than yourself that are outside of your control, anything can happen. My guide at that time ended up getting injured and was down for like five, six months. So now what, you know what I'm saying? I can't train with my guide. So now here I'm training with my coach and yep. we're looking for a new guide just so I can keep on getting ready for Tokyo. And the training that I need to do is not the level of training that I need in order to win in Tokyo. So last season, the Tokyo season is the most frustrating slash craziest season that I've ever had because there was so much going on from guide runners to media to like the disappointment in myself that knowing going into Tokyo that I'm not going to win. Right. Just because of those factors, you know what I'm saying? Cause now here I am, I'm dealing with a new guide all the guys that I had to choose from was not on the level that I needed them to be on in order to win. I already know that. So I know I'm not going to win in Tokyo. And somebody like was doing an interview with me and they were like, do you feel like you could, uh, were in the same shape that you were back in Rio? I'm like, I know I'm not. I could not train on the level that I needed to for like five, six months. Cause I didn't have a guide. Exactly. Yep. And then on top of that, it was like, 
I was telling them too, I'm like, and then my guides are not even on the level that I need them to be on in order for me to win. So the circumstances are a lot different. As much as the, no, one guide want to say, yeah, you know, they were, you know, no, they weren't. If we're just being honest. And then all the while too, like, not only was that going on, my now wife, you know, <laughs> we just got married right after Tokyo. So I'm planning the <laughs> wedding during all this craziness so during this whole chaos of dealing with the guides the media like i said training i'm dealing with now trying to put a wedding together (laughs) at the same time (laughs) like life was very chaotic for me and when that season was over, oh my gosh, it was just a huge weight off of my shoulders, just being honest. But being there in Tokyo, like, don't get me twisted. I enjoyed, one, the fact that I was even there because to make any games, is it's a huge blessing. And to represent your country, is you, it's a huge blessing. And uh, I went out there, of course, again, always keeping that open mind. Anything can happen. But, of course, I knew, like I said, I'm not in the best of shapes in winning shape. But hey, once again, like I said, maybe somebody can take a tumble. Not hoping, but you know, (laughs) that's a factor. Sure, sure. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Yep. (laughs) Or if you hope and pray for that for nobody, but like I said, anything can happen. You know what I'm saying? But yeah, the guy who ended up winning gold, you know, I'm happy for him because records are meant to be broken. He broke my world record in the prelim and then he went on to win, of course, gold and then he broke the world record again with the time of 1082. So, like, to see that, though, like, performance from all the guys, gold, silver medalist, and the bronze medalist, like, all three of them went under 11 seconds. And it took for me to help spark that you know, I was like, bro, that's what's up. This is what the sport is all about. It's continuing to set boundaries and break those boundaries. You know what I'm saying? And those yeah, guys, exactly. they moving. I was like, yeah, we finally for once in like ever in history. I wish I was a part of it. But at the end of the day, hey, I made my history. I set the standard. I'll forever be known as the fastest totally blind athlete in the world because I'm the first, you know. But like those Three dudes. They are etched in history as the first ever three dudes to go under 11 seconds in the totally blind category at a games. Because it was 1098, 1090, and 1082. So it was like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> the first time three athletes were under 11 seconds in our finals. So it was like, what's good? That is what's up. Oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> Wow, that that just it's amazing. I mean, it, <laughs> just the yeah, like you said, the competition. It sounds like it's getting you know that much stronger even just since you've been in. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's all about. And that's why I was so happy too. Like I've shared with uh, another interviewer that I was like, look, if nobody else was running this fast, that means that our class is not getting any faster. And what the heck are we doing? You know, prior to me breaking the world record they were knocking on the 11 second door for about six years. And I said to myself, why haven't nobody went under 11 seconds yet then? Like the former world record prior to me setting it was 1103. I'm like, it's right there. Like that should have been gone. Exactly. So for them to do that, I was like, bro, that was meant to happen. Like, that's what we supposed to do. Oh yeah. All the stars were kind of <laughs> aligning for that. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, that's what it's supposed, that's what's supposed to happen. Like, if it didn't happen, I would have been like, what the heck? Right. <laughs> <laughs> what have y'all been doing these last four years? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. And especially with that extra year, you know, with COVID. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm, fascinating. Um, I, I do want to ask you about guides. I know you've referenced several guides you've had over the years. What would you say, you know, in your opinion, makes the best uh, guide and blind runner relationship? That's a good question because, of course, every guide is different and every athlete is different. What makes the best relationship is, I would just say, how those two got, uh, 
I want to say, well, yeah, how the two, the guide and the athlete, how they, how they mesh together when they're synchronizing, you know, mm-hmm. cause the less room of error that you can have, the better, because just think of it like this, when you're running by yourself, all you got to worry about is just you and yourself, right? Now you throw a tether into that, a piece of string, yarn, whatever it may be. Now you're dealing with two people and arm swings and footsteps. Those all play a factor. You know, how fast one swings, how high one person swings their arm and stuff like if one person goes left, the other person goes right. Like there's more energy expenditure now. And the more efficient you can become, the less energy you spend. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, I was explaining to um, one of my teammates this. And, of course, they know about it. But it's a workout that we do out here. And we're running uphill. We're doing, like, 400 meters up a hill, right? But up up this hill, there's a lot of turns where it's like, okay, you may have to go left. You may have to go right, you know. And, um, of course, I can't guess if that's the right (laughs) way to put it. Even down here on this trail that we run, I don't know when the turn is coming up because of a few reasons. One, I don't like, because some people say, oh, can you count your steps? No, because if I'm running faster, that's a lot less steps. If I'm running slower, that's a lot more steps. Right. And when you're sprinting, you don't even got time to think. And then, of course, if I guess wrong, that's more energy that is expended on both either my end or my guides end on both of our ends. If I were to go say, let's say we're going left and then I guess too soon and I go left and bump into him. And now he has to push me outward. That's energy wasted. Oh yeah. Yo. So like what makes a good duo is the, the efficiency of how you guys run. If y'all can be very efficient together, and that's kind of what we were dealing with too in the Tokyo year. We were I was running with multiple different guides, trying to figure out what was going to be the best fit. Who was I running more efficient with? How can I get down to the starting line to the finish line efficiently and fast? That was parts of our uh, I call it guide running boot camp qualifications kind of like how fast is david running and how efficient is david running with each one of these guys right so right if you can find a guide that runs efficiently with you you know the next thing is just of course the communication aspect and then that's you know based off of person preference but the main thing that goes across the board because everything else is just secondary the biggest factor is how efficient are y'all if your guide can't synchronize with you, then there's no point. You're just going to be wasting energy and getting more tired. Right. Oh yeah. And then it just becomes challenging, you know, for both, both involved. Yeah. And that can lead to potential injuries. Right. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh, when it comes to tethers, I know, you know, some people use like a wrist tether around their hand, some around their waist. What's yeah. your preference? And then just as far as uh, material, what do you like to use? So they have a default tether that we have to use nowadays in the, the Paralympics. When we compete on the big Paralympic stage, we have to use this. There's like this rubber material on the end. And there's this, it's almost like yarn. Well, not really yarn. It's like a ribbon kind of material. It's manufactured in a, a factory. Just put it like that. It's a manufactured tether, and there's these like beads that are connecting the center of the tether, one that they measure, and then two that you have to have shown in some sort of way so they won't see that you're having a disadvantage. It's 30 centimeters long, you know, so that's like a foot. You know what I'm saying? But prior to that, I was running with a shoestring. Just a simple shoestring. Mm, wow. Mm-hmm. 
It just shows, yeah, how simple it can be. And then, you know, something manufactured, there's a lot more detail and everything that goes into that too. Because of course, when I was running with my shoestring, it was just a shoestring tied with a knot in the middle of it, two loops on the ends of them that I cut and a lot of like tying knots in just so it wouldn't slide. <laughs> like you can, t- you can tell it's like, oh yeah, this looks like an arts and crafts kind of project versus something that is like, oh yeah, this was a uh, made out of a shop. You know <laughs> yo, yo, it's it's noticeable. Mm-hmm. Yo, wow, interesting. Also, moving on to blind soccer, definitely wanted to make sure we we mentioned blind soccer. Um, so when did you first get involved in blind soccer? And then as far as being named to the, the national team, definitely curious kind of how that all unfolded. Man, so yeah, that is a crazy story. So got to jump back to uh, the 2019 time, actually, when I was in that, uh, as I mentioned, dark little area of my career, the... United States Association of Blind Athletes, they brought a blind soccer camp out here to the training center. And they mistaken me as one of the blind soccer athletes. Because there's, of course, a lot of blind soccer people here, blind people here. So they thought, hey, blind guy, you're here for soccer. They didn't think there was any other athletes that were blind here for any other sports. So I'm looking at them like, no, I'm not here for blind soccer. I do track. My name is David Brown. How y'all doing? But I'm curious. Blind soccer? Y'all finally getting a team here in the United States? Can I learn some more? Like, what's happening? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and it comes to find out that uh, one of my good friends, Kevin Brazard, I've known him for years, actually. Kevin, he used to do track himself. He was a thrower. You know, he threw shot put. And I met him all the way back in 2007. Me and him competed, actually, in the World Ipsa youth uh championships in colorado springs together so we were teammates Mm. you know so he was a part of this project you could say getting the blind soccer program going here in the united states and when i ran into him i was like bro let me get some info let me talk to you a bit you know so we chatted i went to one of their practices and i told him i'm like you know after tokyo let me get to tokyo i'm gonna hit you up and i'm gonna see how i can get involved with this a little bit so it was crazy after my chaotic year (laughs) of (laughs) tokyo as soon as i got back to my room after i got done competing it was no more than like a few hours later i shot kevin a message i'm like so kevin How's that development going with the blind soccer? And of course, as you mentioned, a lot of things got pushed back when it came to COVID. He was like, hey, we're still kind of in the beginning stages. We have a camp coming up in November. Let's talk when you get back in the States. So when I got back in the States, I jumped on a call with him and um, agreed and got some information and when I say agreed, I said, yeah, sure. I would love to come to, uh, it was in Columbus, Ohio. I would love to come to Columbus and play some blind soccer. And from there, the rest is just history. I fell in love with the sport. Like, it was fun as heck. And so got back home, did my studying in the sense of just like, okay, rules, regulations, equipment, you know, drills, like everything I could learn about blind soccer. And they was like, I, once again, this guy got his potential. We're going to bring him to development camps. So I went to some of the camps where actually I met, um, I think, you know, him, Ricky, you know, so. Oh yeah. Ricky. Yeah. So I met met Ricky. Um, at a few of these camps, I actually, I met him I think in April. And so, in Baltimore, went to Baltimore, played there. And I just continued to uh, develop my skills and learn more about the game throughout the, the whole year leading up until the national trials. But what was even crazier to me was within this period of time, too, I get a call. Well, okay, back in February of uh, this year, which is 2021, uh, well, 2022, to anybody who's listening to this later. <laughs> but February of 2022 here, I met the CEO of USABA, Molly Quinn. And, you know, I was just chatting with her, explained to her, you know, 
my love of the sport of blind soccer now and stuff like that and all that good stuff, right? Now, the thing is, later on in this year, it was like about June or so, June, July-ish, they called me up to ask me, could I be a coach at these blind soccer clinics that they're about to start having up in Los Angeles? I'm like, a coach? I'm barely learning the sport myself. (laughs) Wow. But it was crazy because here I am. I'm now having the honor to be a coach. And I didn't even mention, like, back in April, too, they uh, also invited me to be a blind soccer ambassador. So one of their speakers that they bring into different locations and represent blind soccer, I'm like, what? (laughs) I'm no more than, like I said, less than a year in. So this is crazy, you know? So I'm already like getting these opportunities, but having these opportunities, honestly, I feel it helped me develop even more as a player because when I started coaching these other athletes and other, not even just athletes, but just uh, sighted people as well, you know, there was different things that I went to and we put blinders on people. I don't know if y'all do this in beat baseball, but you know, we just threw blinders on people and we just take them through our sport. Right. You know, and how to do what we do. So explaining this to different people and stuff like that, like having people play the sport helped me become a better player and learn the game even more myself. So when the national selection camp came around one, I was in good shape because of track and field Two, I'm a lot more confident in my game because of how I developed as a player, the skills that I've acquired over not just teaching, but just even playing. And when they honestly called me, because of course you never know what coaches are thinking. One, I had a good idea in the sense of, okay, there's a good high chance just based off of coaches feedback. And, um, and here's the thing too. I'm not saying this in a cocky way. But when you're around other athletes, you know, you can see, like, what's up. You know what I'm saying? Especially when you're playing against them. Whereas it's just like, okay, I got an advantage over you or not. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Yep. In that sense. So, of course, I link up with my teammates. And, you know, we're doing drills and we're doing different, like, conditioning things and things of that nature. You know, you start getting an outline like, okay, I see where you're at right now. There's a good chance, but you just never know. Like I said, just keep that open mind of the coaches can go in any direction. You don't know if they choose you or not, especially me in my case, because I'm a dual sport athlete. I'm doing tracks. You know what I'm saying? They may just be like, nah, you know, this may conflict with what you're doing. X, Y, and Z. But I was like, okay, there's a good chance I may be able to make this team, but let me not screw up. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Let me not screw up. Yep. So lo and behold, we continue on through the whole weekend selection process. Things are looking good. I'm feeling good. That's one thing because, you know, going from track to soccer, it's different systems that's being used. Sure. So I'm feeling good where I'm just like, man, you know, I did take a bang to my knees, but that's just because, you know, you know how it is playing a physical sport. <laughs> you know, yeah. I ran into one of the walls and um, my knees rolled up, but that was like the only thing that happened to me. I was still able to play. I was still functioning. Everything was still good. You know what I'm saying? So it was cool. I was like, okay, I got a good chance. I got a good chance, but I just never know. So I'm sitting on pins and needles just like everybody else. Like, did I make it? Did I not? Did I make it? Did I not? You know, so when they called me, oh man, the coaches, they made it seem like they started out with this big old speech. I was like, oh shoot, I screwed up. (laughs) (laughs) It made me feel like I did something like so wrong. They were about to say, we're sorry to inform you, but they were like, we're happy to inform you actually that you have made the team. And I'm like, yeah, I actually cried. Oh, wow. (laughs) Just out of excitement, just because it's one of them things where it's like, oh man, like I said, you just never know. (laughs) For sure. Yep. Wow. So blind soccer and track. I mean, now you kind of have both, you know, to, to work toward. And I assume there are some similarities between the two, would you say? 
There is. So, of course, with track, you get the conditioning aspect of, you know, you're able to run and um, get the, that volume in, go fast and stuff like that. And that can help me on the field, actually, when I'm off of the ball, get into positions pretty quickly and stuff. Blind soccer can help with track, too, because, of course, all those directions that I'm going left and right, frontwards and backwards, you don't do that on the track. So now this is helping me become less injury prone because I get to work out in different directions and different planes and things of that nature, you know, and not only that with track, uh, there's a lot of stuff that we do, especially since I've been training for the 400 meters that deals with hot, uh, high volume. So, um, going into soccer, where it's like, okay, instead of running three miles now, you know, I have to run, you know, I play midfield. That's one of my primary position. So I'm running this way, that way, this way, that way, you know, yep. I'm going like seven miles depending, you know what I'm saying? But how I train is I'll train of course in the morning with track and then in the afternoon with soccer. So my average day, at least twice a week right now, I'm going at least like 10 miles in one day, you know, 11 miles. So when mm. I get into a soccer game, I'm not going as far, you know, cause of course our, Soccer pitch is a lot smaller, but, and I don't have to, and I take out also the track workout in the morning. That's one thing too, that helped me out when I was at the national camp. It's like, okay, I don't even have to worry about a track workout in the morning. I'm waking up in the morning and we're doing like our morning workouts and uh, the afternoon scrimmages and stuff like that. I'm pretty much fresh. So like I'm able to run a lot faster and a lot further and do a lot more than, um, Opposed to what I have to do, in, uh, you know, like I said, if I'm just doing track and then, then do soccer and stuff like that. So, yeah, there is a lot of crossover there in the sense of what we do and a lot of helping and benefits. And the cool thing about it is also the track season and um, soccer season does not overlap. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That definitely does help. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, like, for instance, um, we have an up-and-coming scrimmage against Team Canada in March that I can actually announce. So we are having a scrimmage against Canada in March and um, my track season starts just right after that, as far as competitions go. And then um, my track season ends in July of next year, this time. And then um, right after that, you know, we got uh, just some blind soccer stuff that we will be doing. So so, yeah, I'm like, it just works out so good. (laughs) Oh yeah, the timing couldn't be better. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I know the goal is to have the U.S. uh, national team, you know, national blind soccer team compete in the 2028 Paralympics, uh, which are going to be in L.A. And I'm curious, would you be able to actually do both, you know, track and blind soccer? Would you have to pick one? How does that work? So... I'm retiring from track in 2024. Oh, really? Yeah. So I'm not going to have to choose because it will already be chosen. And honestly, I've already chosen it. I got choose to do blind soccer in 2028. So I'm literally retiring from track and field in 2024 just because of it. Oh, I see. I see. Mm-hmm. Wow. And is that, I mean, do you know, is there a rule that's saying that you have to you know, if you had the chance to compete in two different sports in a games, would you actually be able to do that? Oh, yeah, I definitely will be able to if the time allows, you know, in the sense of when my races were happening versus, you know, when the games were actually happening and stuff. But this is just a personal choice to me. Um, sure, it's sure. been a long time coming, you know, in track and field. I've been in a decade over this thing. By 2024, it would have been 12 years. So a dozen years, <laughs> but yeah, it's like, there's a lot more longevity in blind soccer. And uh, honestly, I love it in the sense of the community. It's fun and um, crazy enough. I can almost go as far as say, I love it more than track. I mean, if I'm retiring from track for it, yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. Wow. That says a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Hey, congrats on, you know, all your achievements and certainly wish you the best of luck. Uh, with blind soccer moving forward here and uh, before we wrap up i did want to give you the chance to mention uh i know you you do have a business you mentioned with your wife yeah so our business is team dr brown llc you can find us on youtube which is team dr brown and um i'm on instagram which is that boy d brown 
<laughs> and we also have a uh, team dr brown which is on instagram and then i'm also on facebook which is u.s paralympic athlete david brown so like david brown u.s paralympic athlete so yeah those are our primary websites and stuff awesome awesome and i'll definitely include links to all those in the show notes uh, for everyone to have appreciate it appreciate it all right again we've been chatting with david brown uh highly accomplished track and field star and now a budding uh, blind soccer star <laughs> uh, so so really <laughs> really appreciate the time david uh it's been a, a pleasure just love your your attitude your outlook your sense of humor and uh thanks so much for joining us here on eyes free sports man i appreciate you and what you're doing bro keep it up thanks man that means a lot Alrighty, take it easy you too Be sure to follow the Eyes Free Sports podcast at facebook.com slash eyesfreesports and on Twitter at eyesfreesports. Sports.